Welcome to the Family Biz Show, where we dive deep into the fascinating world of family-owned businesses. I'm your host, Michael Columbus, and in each episode, we'll bring you inspiring stories, practical insights, and expert advice from successful family business owners and industry thought leaders. Hidden in this grandparent-grandchild philanthropy and in the process is actually young children learning to ask for something in a very safe environment. This is step-by-step, paint-by-numbers, Get your strategy mapped out system. Join us on this journey as we uncover the unique challenges and opportunities of running a family business. The best part about it is that the guys in the field didn't treat me as the owner's son. I was just another guy. But I think what's super unique about our story, we lost the business and we got it back. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's dive right into the next episode of The Family Biz Show. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I'm your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And today we are joined by Eric and Scott White from Denver Machine. Welcome, guys. Appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thanks, Michael. Sure. We appreciate it. So typically what we like to do is ask each of you just to give us the the 30-second, the one-minute version of how you entered the family business, what generation you are, um, maybe even a little bit about how many family members, you know, are in the business today or have been in the business and um, kind of go from there. And then we'll get, then we'll break it. Then we'll just jump into a history of the, of Denver machine. So Eric, since uh, you're on my left, I'm going to ask you, how did, you know, tell us about your journey before the family business and then, into the family business and how did that work for you? So um, my, uh, I I went to college at the Colorado School of Mines for mining engineering. So did my dad and so did his dad. And they're all in the chain of the four generations in this business. Scott's also uh, an engineer for mines. And so we're all engineers, not business people, but um, I got started because I, I went to ROTC and took um, uh, a job with the Army for five years, um, most of it in Germany in the Corps of Engineers. And um, then Scott will talk about his track. But when I got done with, with that stint, I uh, joined the company that Scott was with, which was Caterpillar uh, Tractor in, in uh, Illinois. And um, after a few years of that, I got uh, uh, missing home because we live in Denver, which is a beautiful area of the country with the Rocky Mountains and a lot to do and 300 days of sunshine a year. And, uh, and so life was too short to live in Illinois. So I came back. I again followed Scott. He had come back a little earlier from Cat than I did. And uh, I went to a company that was making auto bag or automobile airbags. Um, they were on the explosive side, inflator side. Scott was there as an engineer. And because of my army experience as an officer, I got put into an operations management job. Um, my, my folks were of the point that, uh, that they couldn't really, they didn't have room in the business for us when we got our careers going. And um, so we didn't, I didn't get in until, uh, well, 20 years ago. So I was 37. 
Okay. And um, uh, Scott too. And, and about that time um, that, that uh, I got in, I joined Scott. Uh, the company that I was with was moving to Mexico and I got paid an extra year's income to stay on with those guys. So Scott, Scott had some more money in the equity of his house. So he bought the company and invited me in as his 50 partner a year later. Nice. I appreciate that. So you guys both spent some time outside of the family business that had already that was already in existence well before you came into it and had lots of experience on your own. That's true. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'd like to point out, this is Scott, by the way, I would like to point out uh, um, that Eric and I are identical twins. And so our paths have intertwined throughout our lives. And that's why we seem to wind up with the same businesses and, and so forth. Um, so I, I also went to the Colorado School of Mines and I'm a metallurgical engineer. Okay. And um, we're a big mines family. Um, mines is a school similar to MIT or one of the other schools that people haven't heard of it, but it's a, it's a top-notch engineering school. And uh, you can tell that we have a family thing going on there. Eric's son just graduated from mines in oh, geological wow. engineering, and he's taken off and going to work uh, doing that type of work. And my daughter graduated from mines uh, a year ago, and she's working for HP as a computer science engineer. But, you know, you mentioned that, uh, that yeah, we have some experience. And in my particular case, I went to work right out of college for Caterpillar, and I spent 10 years with Caterpillar, and my wife and I are both metallurgists, and uh, and then we decided to move home and kind of followed that path, and then when my folks wanted to retire, uh, I bought the business, and neither one of us was invited to join the business until we bought the business, and we had to go to the bank and get the money and, and, uh, and go that route, and that was by design because my mom and dad were very um, you know, they felt very strongly that somehow they had been taken advantage of by having to work for his father for 30 years and run the business while the father was retired in Arizona and pulling money out of the business. And so they felt like that was not the way to go. And, um, and so that's, that's what happened. It was a small enough business that we were able to make a, a fairly easy transition and my dad is still involved as a consultant in the business uh, even though he doesn't consult much but he loves saying that he's a, a, a consultant actually he, he ran into another consultant that was a senior consultant and he came back and said Scott he said my card's not right it has to say senior consultant so that's anyway, awesome so I love he's it. Still, so he's uh he's still a member of the business but that's that's uh that's how we came to own the business 20 years ago and we're 107 years old now, and my great grandfather started it. Okay. Uh, so four generations, and uh, there may be a fifth, but in every single case of all the generations, everybody had to go out in the industry and work for five years or more uh, before they were invited to join the family business or before they were able to come into the family business because we just felt like that was a really important uh, part of our success be able to bring something to the table and also to also not be the, the SOB, so to speak, you know, that, uh, that just comes in and, and, uh, you know, doesn't have to show up on time and, you yeah. know, hasn't, hasn't had a real job where they had a, you know, where they, where they know that, uh, that they have to make it or break it, you know? 
Yeah. And, and for those of you who might not have heard of what the SOB is, that's the son of the boss, right? That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> SOB, son of the boss. <laughs> so I, I just want to, you know, I want to point out something that was really interesting. There is no right or wrong way for a family to do their transition or succession plan. Um, you just do what works for, you know, the family. But based on something that didn't work, you know, your your parents, I know, you know, like you said, they felt taken advantage of that grandpa was taking money out of the business, even though he was, you know, retired and they were doing most of the work um, or all of the work, um, uh, as the case may be. And that prompted that set of circumstances prompted them to say, hey, you know what, we're going to do something different when we do this. Um, and we want you guys to cut a check for it. And by having to cut that check and go to the bank and be responsible for that, my gut says the, you know, that makes a big difference. Your your investment mentally is way different than the SOB. You know, it, it's it's your business and you're responsible. And the buck stops here from that moment that you took over. That sound and feel right to the, you know, how I explain that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, matter of fact, I didn't pay myself for the first year because I was worried and I couldn't see how it would possibly work. Um, but, you know, it did. And my folks were there the whole way, uh, making sure that we did not fail. And um, but that, that's absolutely right. Um, from the very beginning of us owning the business, we make, you know, the buck stops with with us. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that, you know, as as a father, you know, my father, the first three years that I, you know, that, that he, he stayed on for a couple of years and then was kind of almost three years, actually. And, you know, it just seemed like that, uh, you know, you had to do everything that he said, even though he wasn't the boss, he was still kind of in control. And um, and it took me a while. And finally, I learned to say, hey, dad, I appreciate your advice. And uh, I'm going to consult with a couple of other advisors that I've got. And I'll let you know which way I decide. And uh, once once we got that figured out, then uh, then things got a lot easier. Great. Um, Eric, would you mind taking us through when your great grandfather started the business? What was Denver Machine doing at that time? What was the business? How did they make how did the business make money when it first started? Sure thing. Um, my great grandfather was from California originally, and when they found gold in Colorado up near Central City, um, he landed in Central City trying to find gold because he was a young man and he was eager, and they didn't have much left in, in Northern Colorado at that time or LA for him. He uh, basically did not find gold, and rather than starve, he learned how to take a job as a blacksmith putting shoes on for the burrows, which would carry the ore carts in and out of the mines. Okay. Um, what, what year is this? This is about 1910. Wow. I love this. This is great. And um, we know that he got his apprenticeship down in Denver uh, as a machinist. In the day, an apprenticeship was a you become accomplished machinist in a shop, and then the owner of the machine shop writes you a letter that says to whom it may concern, 
you know, Fred White, who's my great grandfather, he he is an accomplished machinist, and I vouch for him. And this is my whatever. We still have that letter hanging, that exact letter hanging on our wall right now. And um, anyway, so the great grandfather saved all of his money when he could afford it. He brought his girlfriend back by about uh, 1915 or so, and they were able to purchase our shop in 1916. He did it with a partner. Um, back in 1916, the shop was probably the only and largest machine shop. If not, if it wasn't the only one, it you know the machine shops of the day were uh, were very specialized because people didn't have machine tools. So when mining equipment broke and he had his contacts up there and railroad equipment and even the farmer's axle broke, you know, then they could actually uh, do a uh, do business by getting a part repaired or a new one made because there wasn't anything on the shelf. Back then they didn't have any telephones. So everybody worked on a in, in what was what would be now lower downtown Denver. Okay. And, they would all walk to lunch at one of the one of the surviving old hotels is the Oxford Hotel, and the story goes that he would go to lunch every day at the Oxford Hotel. It was a two-hour affair, where uh, where everybody was wearing suit and ties, and the steel supplier would make a deal with the guy that needed the work, that would make a deal with the machine shop to do the work, and so on. And that's how business got done before telephones back in in those days. Sure, it was and like a networking event. It was. It must have been a really fun time to be around. We have a picture of my great-grandfather above my desk right now in line with all of the generations. And he's sitting with a three-piece suit on a vertical lathe. It's like a potter's wheel. Uh, but it turns, and then the tool comes down on the, whatever he's turning. And he's he's got a cigar in his mouth. And it, it's just a really neat picture. Um and it shows the, the sign of the times, you know. Yeah. And um, so he he did get his wife back, and his wife had had uh, well, eventually they had children, and they had three children, and one of them was my grandfather Ed White, who uh, would go to the Colorado School of Mines, and then he went to Sullivan Compressor Company back in the day, which turned into Solaire for anybody in the audience that knows who that company is. And he worked there for three or four years. My great grandfather then, you know, started becoming ill and um, he was getting tired. And so, uh, so he called up and invited my grandfather back into the business. My grandfather um, came back, but he always had his, um, his interest in this new technology, pneumatic tools, which were air compressors and rock hammers. And in the mining industry, they used them with jack leg drills. And with the air compressor would would uh, would use a jack leg drill where a miner would sit on it and drill a hole pattern into the rock, which they would then blast. And so he actually got a call from the Sullivan Compressor Company after he left the company, and they said, you know, we don't have a distributorship to sell our machines in Denver. You wouldn't happen to be able to have a corner of that shop. 
that you we could put a sign on your window. And from that came the second business for the company at that time, which was which was uh, called Denver Air Machinery Company, which is similar to Denver Machine Shop. It had a separate location. And my grandfather became very interested in that company and the whole distributor distribution business. It was the same size as one of the Caterpillar distributors or one of the American Harvester distributors at the time. He, so that's those are the guys he liked to rub elbows with, the guys that didn't have their hands greasy. And so he hired a couple of guys. By the time that my great-grandfather died and passed the business to him, he hired a, a couple of guys that would run the machine shop. And because they ran that machine shop for most of my grandfather's career, um, they were part owners at that time. And they uh, were a very small uh, part of the ownership. But they basically would, would keep the old machinery running, because we're a big repair shop. So they didn't always have new equipment because my grandfather didn't necessarily want to reinvest. And they got really heavily involved in repairing mining equipment. And they just kind of kept that business afloat for about 40, 50 years there. Um, and then it wasn't until my, my father, Jim White, he had gone to the Colorado School of Mines, graduated in 64. And he, uh, basically took a job for Shell Oil Company and spent his career first with Shell for a couple of years. Then he owed time to the Army. Uh, during the Vietnam era, he was in for two years and uh, was got I were born. And then he came back and worked for Shell for another couple of years. And then he joined the family business upon being invited. Um, but he joined on the air machinery side too. Back in the 80s, the mining industry, uh, people might remember that there was a really bad recession in the early 80s, and it took out a lot of industries. So one of the one of the companies that took out what which would be their distributor, which was Dresser Industries at the time, and those that, that air compressor and rock drill and uh, rock hammer uh, company went belly up, and when they did that. Uh, the, the air machine had no distributorship. They had no choice but to shut that down. In the meantime, the, the machine shop wasn't doing well because it was 90% hedged into mining industry, and the mining industry was shutting down at that point. There was no uh, there was no money in the ore to uh, to be able to afford to keep the mines open, so they stopped needing to repair their stuff until things recovered. And my dad took over that machine shop when he shut down the other one and eventually the other guys um, one by one they kind of left and then the shop was in shambles and it almost went out of business back in the early 80s when they did that and uh, my dad tells a story about one one guy his name was Chuck Sparrow and he was a machinist and one by one when he couldn't afford to pay anybody it you know the paychecks went uh, week to week without without uh, being cashed because no there was no money in the bank. He got down to that one guy, and it was my dad trying to make the sales and that one guy trying to to do the machining. And the guy worked for no money for five months. Wow! And we later found out the the true story about it was that his I guess the one guy I saw him a couple months ago. He walked into our shop as an old guy, and uh, and his 
During that time when it got so bad, his wife said, well, you wouldn't believe what happened to our family that time. First of all, I wouldn't let him come back and stay in the house. He had to stay to stay working. He had nothing else to do. But then it made her go out and get a job for the U.S. Postal Service. So she says, you know, ever since that time, we've had a really good living. We never really had a good living before that time. Uh, anyway, that's a fun story. But my dad worked hard. They were building a new airport here in Denver, and he focused on many industries other than the mining industry, the construction industry, anywhere he could get a dime, the food machinery industry, um, and the steelmaking industry down in Pueblo, which would, uh, which he could repair that equipment or make a spare part, which was unavailable on that equipment. Uh, and then he eventually grew himself out of the debt of the other company. And they, he, my mom joined him at that time. So it was basically them. They owned the real estate at that time because he was able to buy the first building. Um, and so they didn't even pay themselves. They just paid themselves rent for the real estate and it kept on going. Uh, and then, you know, and then it kept it really small. So our company did well under a million dollars of revenues a year and only had a handful of men, you know, and then, uh, they always kept it that way because they, I guess more my mom than my dad, but, but they were insecure and thought that, you know, if they tried to grow it too big again, that they would lose it. So anyway, it hasn't gotten started out to be that big until Scott came in and, and bought it and realized he didn't want to do it, I guess, by himself because he invited me to join him. And uh, then you know, we've grown it over the last 20 years quite a bit because we had to, we really had to hit the ground running that year. And we had to grow because we, we were now having to support the rents for the parents plus two incomes. We both took a huge reduction in pay from sure. our professional careers uh, to come to the company. And then we said, well, and then we paid back, uh, Scott's original amount that he had to put into the SBA note. And then we started growing and building and growing. And today we are now at, um, after 20 years, we're now doing close to 7 million in revenues about, and about 45 people. We keep it, uh, fairly, fairly tightly held. Nobody owns stock like Scott and I. And so we can really treat it like a family business. We're not having to pay off any uh, anybody that's not involved directly with the business, but that's the story of the business. Love it, Eric. It's obvious that you're really proud of that family history and all the things that uh, the the people that came before you um, have done to get put set, kind of set you guys up um, in, in the position position that you're in today. It wouldn't have happened at some levels unless everybody else you know did their part through the years um the other thing i i would I, that i find really interesting is you know your your father if i make sure i got this right it's not your father um saw what your grandfather had went through when the mining industry was kind of falling apart a little differently or wasn't didn't have the kind of work available that he needed to keep the machine shop going and he diversified and he went out and said, you know, what other industries are out there that we can serve to make sure that we don't go through that same thing that he went through. 
that's an absolute family lesson which is passed down you know and i think that that what really made the machine shop uh almost go belly up back in the early 80s late 70s was um when we were too invested in one mine and one mine in southern wyoming was doing 80 percent of the business for denver machine and then you know, when they got over that, my dad taught us that never have more than 20% of your business vested in any one customer or industry. And so we've diversified. Today we do work for the food machinery industry, steel making industry, the oil and gas industry, the railroad industry, um, the, uh, of course, the mining industry and aggregates and, and a lot of a lot of that uh and i we're, we are proud of our family's history both scott and i and um it's a sacred thing this company we we're not uh we're hoping that we have kids that are that are eagerly wanting to join in our that, that we have kids that are educated enough in our opinions to join now they got to get the experience and they're working on that <clears throat> Excuse me. So I would say that chance of survival of this company uh, over is probably as good or better than other family businesses in America today. That's great. Scott, let me turn it over to you for a second. What I'm curious about is, um, you know, Eric gave us a you know, the, the, the 3000 foot version of what you guys do today. Um, you, but you've been doing this for 20 years. So, you know, talk about, if you would, some of the decisions that were, that, that, you know, that you were, that worked out really well for you over the last 20 years. And if you don't mind talk, you know, if there's, if there's some things that didn't work out well and, you know, what you would have done differently or, you know, what you learned from those, you know, those, the, those experiences through the years? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think when we first got started, Eric said we had to we had to figure out how to grow. And so we had a growth mindset and we still have a growth mindset. Um, it's kind of like you're either growing or you're dying. And, um, and so that means a constantly looking for the next opportunity. And I think when I got to the point where I was specifically concentrating on strategy rather than operations in the business to try and understand what are the good industries to go after and what type of businesses. And you know what, what really propelled us was the great recession in 2008. Okay. We got the business in 2002, but in 2000, 2008, there was a great recession. And and we didn't have any work, uh, but we had one customer, we violated our rule and we had one customer that offered us a huge job and we needed space. So we took the job and I was looking for space and I ran into a company that was, um, they, were, they were very concentrated on one industry, which was aggregate mining. But we were doing work, repair work on coal pulverizing equipment and they were doing repair work on aggregate crushing equipment and it looked to me like it was very similar and I ran right into a company that was going out of business because of the recession 
and uh, was in the middle of an auction. And so we made a deal with the owner and we bought all the critical equipment at auction value. And we hired their top seven people and we brought them in and then uh, we, we found a location and we rented space in another building and, uh, and just fed them welding work or whatever the heck we could find in those first couple of years. And it really defined us because it, it got us into the mindset of, of, you know, you don't just have to grow internally. So, um, so we were able to, we were able to grow during that time. And, and so we're constantly looking for opportunities for growth and what else we can, um, we can find. Another opportunity we ran into was a business that's similar, similar customers to ours, but, uh, but not necessarily doing exactly what we do. We do precision machining. And we found a business that, uh, that does um, forming and welding and fabrication. And they're about the same size as us. And their owner had had a stroke and he really wanted to sell that business. And we figured out a way to, to buy that business and, and it, it doubled our size. Uh, and you know, and that business has done very well. It's paid for itself and, uh, and it's become, you know, they're, they're right within our family. And here recently, just this last year, Eric and I, uh, we bought a third business, which is a, uh, a very small business, but it, uh, it does metal cutting, um, with flame, uh, like, uh, oxy fuel and plasma. And okay. so we can cut up, you know, we cut up to six inch piece of steel, um, using that into different shapes. And, um, so I would say that, you know, having this growth mindset and always looking for the next opportunity around the table has been one of our secrets to success. Um, we've moved locations, into a much larger facility and um, combined our operations. And that's helped us too. Um, but I, I will talk about some of the lessons learned over the years. So over the last 20 years. Let know, me pause for a second, Scott, sure. because I, yeah, there's some things that you said that I just want to unpack them a little bit because I, I don't want people, you know, people listening, I want to make sure that they caught this. So mm -hmm. number one, when 2007 and eight came into play, you guys were obviously in a financial position that you had been storing up and you had some dry powder. So even though there's a recession coming, you know, you took advantage of some opportunities that were available. And I, I tell people both, you know, I'm a wealth advisor and a business coach. I do both. And it's, it's this weird skill set that comes together really nicely for us. But like my favorite time is 2020, you know, March of 2020, I help people make a boatload of money because, you know, we did a really good job of buying some things and, and taking dry powder, the cash that was available on the sidelines and, and utilizing it. Um, and you're talking about exactly the same thing. Warren Buffett says, you know, you make money when others are fearful and, and you know, you get uh, get greedy when others are fearful and uh, get fearful when others are greedy, right? That's the, the Warren Buffett philosophy. And that's what you're talking about. But I think it's really important to understand that you had to be ready. You had to have, be looking. And it's that growth mindset that you had. And it's that, you know, that looking for those right opportunities and then having the ability to be able to cash in on those abilities when you're doing it. Nicely done. Thank you. Uh, I yeah. think the piece that you're missing is that you have to step out on faith. Ah, okay. When you're making a huge investment, you know, there's risk, there's risk attached to it, but there's also reward. And so if you're willing to take the risk and step out on faith and realize that you can do it, then that, then that's, that's the big part of it for me. Okay. I, 
So that, and then you were going to talk about some of the lessons learned through the years. Oh yeah. So, you know, there's only a few things that can really shut you down. You know, like one of them is, uh, is our, you know, is the safety stuff, you know, with OSHA and them walking into our industry and we've met those guys a few times and, um, and, you know, so we had to work really hard on safety and, um, you know, your banker, your banker is a super important relationship. And if you don't know your banker, personally know your banker, um, you know, that can get you in big trouble. And Eric and I got in trouble in 2016. I had fallen and from a ladder and broke my back and I was out of work for about six months and um, made some decisions. You know, we didn't have quite have things maybe in order for the bank. And we didn't, we were with a very large bank at the time. And that large bank treated us like a number. And forevermore, we will always go with a small local bank. And it was a small local bank that actually helped us out of the situation that we were in. And I think, you know, every business is going to go through these, uh, these types of bumps in the road. Um, you know, we've been, we've been in uh, situations where we thought we were going to get sued by a very large company and they were going to force us out of business. And you just kind of take these things one step at a time and you know, realize that you just put one foot in front of the other and you can drudge through it. And, and as long as you just keep working, you know, there's a perfect storm that can take anybody out, but as long as you just keep working hard and keep moving forward, I think that's the lesson learned that, uh, and that now today, of course, you know, I'm, I'm very confident in our future. We've been through a lot of, a lot of this type of stuff. Sure. And, you know, we've been through the recessions in 2016, we had a very, very difficult recession here in Denver because the oil industry fell out and, uh, and nobody really predicted it. And regardless of what industries we're in, somehow we're all, they're all tied to oil and at least in this part of the country. And, um, you know, and then you have to tighten the belt and you, and you have to make those decisions to, um, to save the company rather than the individuals. And, and it's, it's tough. Um, it's a tough road. Uh, Eric, pretty much went down that road uh, when I was out and having to make those decisions. And interestingly, a lot of those people are back with us again, but um, yeah, but anyway, so that, those are some of the lessons learned that, uh, that you really can make it, you know, I appreciate even when the, even when the going gets really tough, you, 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 you can still trudge through. And I think it helps to know, well, my business is 107 years old. We're going to make it. Yeah. Nope. I appreciate it. Um, Eric, what are some of the, from your perspective, what are some of the tough parts about being part of a family business? Well, uh, I think one of the one of the hardest things is to try to avoid talking shop during all um, family activities, and you know, and so. The ability to, to leave it and check it at the door is um, is instrumental. Um, Scott and I both put in our buy sell that our wives could not work in the business, so that was by design. They have their own careers and they work hard too, and um, but we just don't. We've avoided some of those kinds of confrontations that have happened earlier on in our, our company's lives. My, my dad's brother joined the business and, um, you know, it just, it didn't work out. There was a lot of argument. There was a lot of, of things. And people asked Scott and I, how we, how we, um, 
can work together as a 50-50 relationship. Most people can't believe that can be done, but we're always looking out for each other's family first. So, um, you know, I think uh, I think that, that that helps a lot. Um, I think that <clears throat> the ability to understand the others involved in the business um, really helps uh, really helps out. Scott and I really understand. My mom passed on a few years back, but we understand my dad at 81, and uh, and he's still involved. And so we still really make him feel a piece of it when we're at, say, a function at one of our, uh, his birthday party or something, or one of our functions outside of the company. And even inside the company, he's invited to come to the the Christmas parties and stuff like that. That's awesome. No, I I appreciate that. Um, what are some of the what are some of the other? Uh, let's let me think about. I had it on the tip of my tongue, Scott. From your from your position, what are some of the best parts about being part of a family business? Well, I. I First of all, I think the very best part of being part of a family business is the fact that you have an opportunity to create your own destiny. And, you know, all of us have gone out and worked for the man, so to speak, and got the golden handcuffs. And, um, and but who gets that opportunity to, to say, hey, maybe I could be a millionaire someday. Maybe we don't become a millionaire, but we have the opportunity to, uh, to, to do that. And, and so I think having the family business is, 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 a, is a much easier road to that type of success than having to start from scratch. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the, the guys that have to start from scratch have to get past being an owner operator of whatever it is they do. And, you know, it reminds me of a, a, a seminar I went to, there was a guy that wrote a book, Michael Gerber, and it was the, it was. The E-Myth. The E-Myth, right. I read that book and I thought, wow, this is awesome. And I had just bought the business and he was coming to Denver to give a seminar. So I went to see his seminar and he asked, hey, who in this room has more than one employee or has less than one employee and three-fourths of the people raised their hand? And he said, well, who in here has, you know, two or five or whatever it was? So by the time he got to 10, I, there were very few of us in that room that had that many employees and you know it's just like you know joining a family business is difficult because of all the challenges but it's but it's 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 a great opportunity for the person who wants to own their own business because of the the somebody else has come and paved the road before yeah and to and to your point i, I just again i i like taking what people say and just making sure that we make it plain as you know clear as glass you know um, when you're building and working in a family business, your salary may be less than what you might make on the outside, might be the same, might be more, but it's, but, but, it, but all that time you're building value because you own the business and you're building value for yourself and your families rather than building value for stockholders, you know, on a fortune 500 company. Um, so I, I, I think it is very important that people realize that, you know, when you have that opportunity, 
the value of building the value of that business and the real estate that you own and the, all the equipment that you own. Yes, there's risks to it, but is it more risk or less risk than working for a publicly traded company that you don't have any <laughs> control over your future at some levels? Well, that's true. And, and I, uh, you know, if I give an example of all of my buddies that I worked at Caterpillar with back in the 80s or early 90s, and, um, you know, they're all retired. They all got pushed out. They're all like, you know, I'm 57. And most of those guys might be 60 or 61, 62, but every one of them have been given a, a package and they had to leave. And so, um, and so who's really got security? Is it somebody working for a large corporation or is it somebody who's working for themselves? You know, I mean, um, and you, you brought up real estate. Real estate has been a huge part of our uh, wealth building through the businesses. And, you know, I mean, my folks are able to retire because they own the real estate that the business occupied and the business is able to pay the rent. We'd be paying it to a landlord one way or another, but this way they get a retirement income and we still have to pay the rent. And, uh, and in likewise, the two other properties that Eric and I have bought, we bought the, the real estate along with the business. And that's why one of the reasons we bought that business. And so that we can, build uh build real estate wealth uh as well as the equity in the business and the hope is for us someday to uh to be able to to have multiple income streams when we retire i love it talk to me you, you talked to eric you mentioned the buy sell agreement between the two of you how often do you guys and we're talking about wealth building so buy sell agreements i think are that you know that that safety valve underneath the, or the safety net underneath that wealth building. Um, how often do you guys review your buy sell agreement? Well, we've been really happy with our original buy sell agreement. It was a basic Mexican showdown, I guess they call it, where you know one of us can leave at any time uh, that we want to, and then the other one has the opportunity to buy them out. Uh, if, if that was ever going to be the case. Um, we've recently revisited that just based on the value of our assets that we've um, acquired and then realizing, uh, you know, we've, we've secured our, our assets because our, the EBITDA of our company is rather small. We keep it that way and pay low taxes and, and it's a lifestyle business really. But uh, because of that, you know, we've never had a lot of value in the business itself, but uh, but with the other assets going, we realized that if there unfortunately was a surviving spouse, um, that we would want her to be able to be taken care of. Uh, there may not be enough life insurance money in order to do that. And so we're restructuring the buy sell right now to move up to a specific amount of insurance money and then an agreement of payments after that to the surviving family so that so that we can ensure the survival of the of the entity. I love that. That's you know, you so it's music to my ears that you guys are doing that. Because remember I said I, I wear both hats as the wealth advisor and the business coach. So, you know, I, I could spend a whole show talking about growth strategy and where are we going and what what are we doing with it. But at the at the same at the same time talking about things like the buy-sell agreement, just really pertinent and important to make sure that, you know, God forbid, you know, uh, we never know when our time is, you know, up. 
um, you know, the buy-sell agreement is there and it's fine-tuned to take care of families. I'm good for you guys. Appreciate that. Um, when you start looking at the next 12 to 18 months, what would you say are your top three priorities over the next 12 to 18 months from the business perspective? The, the highest priority today continues to be to attract and retain good talent. Um, everyone is saying this, but particularly in skilled trades, we lost two generations of workers. Yeah. And so now you have very old guys and you have very young guys. And the very young guys all think they're worth what the old guys are because they can look everything up on the internet and tell you the answer right now. And, um, and so it's been very difficult uh, for us. And so over the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to continue to figure out ways to, to provide training to our current workforce, to provide the best work environment possible, and the highest salary that the company can afford, and also to hire some good top talent. And um, we've put a lot of effort into it already. Uh, we, if you visit our website, you'll see an interview done with our current employees explaining why you might want to become a machinist. And, um, and so that's, that's our highest priority is, is, uh, is our people. I love it. I, and it's, you know, I, I tell every business owner I meet, I ask the question, what business do you think you're in? And it, cause it's, it's always, you know, it's machines, it's, it's aggregate, it's, it's construction. And I'm like, no, you are not. If you don't realize that you're in the people business first, it doesn't matter what you, that's what you do is construction, but we're all in the people business. Cause if we don't serve those people, whether they be customers or suppliers or the people that work for us, we're in trouble. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what, when, if, if I've, Eric, I'll, I'll go to you. If three o'clock in the morning comes and you wake up and something about work is on your mind, what are you thinking about? Uh, <clears throat> well, I've, you know, I've done so much, uh, um, soul searching. Uh, I usually don't dream about work. I dream about my trip to, uh, Key West. <laughs> Love Key West. Love Key West. As a matter of fact, I didn't give you guys, I want to let people know, I, my wife and I were just in Denver two weeks ago um, for a, a conference, um, and we ended up getting to go to El Dorado uh, Canyon, and we went um, to the top of Mount Evans. We did a whitewater rafting trip, and we went to the Red Rocks um, for a concert. And I can't to say enough good things. What you said about Denver didn't doesn't even do it justice it's just an amazing place like to the point where it is definitely on our hit list of it places to visit more often but maybe that uh it, it, it's a beautiful place to live um i was i was blown away i've been there many many times but i've never been able to take the time to be there and uh so i, I just wanted to give a a nod to denver and you know the rocky mountain region it's uh it's gorgeous there. And we're we're so, very lucky. Very lucky. Yeah. So Eric, good for you. If you're you're thinking about your trips and your and, and the personal stuff, I think that that's wonderful. That what that means to me, what that says is that the two of you 
complement each other enough and you've built enough, uh, a, a good enough team around yourselves that you're not constantly thinking about work and it's not something that you wake up at three in the morning thinking about. Um, hats yeah. off to you. So I have a harder time turning it off. <clears throat> yeah, just let me clarify just a little bit that um, uh, that we're Scott and I, our personalities are um, are totally different. So we do complement each other very well. Um, I wear a lot of different hats, and he wears other hats. Over the years, he's been very instrumental at, at working with the uh, the business um, end of things. And uh, particularly when it comes to HR, um, finance, and uh, legal stuff, and um, and he actually has been work, worked the company books for many years. Only now have I gotten involved with that. Uh, I wore the the hat of the marketing, and then um, building our websites and working on uh, customer relations more. I used to do a lot more of that. It's, Still get into some of the estimation just because I enjoy it, but um, you know, if you were going to be a worry wart all the time, you wouldn't want to be in a business like ours because uh, we just you got to have faith that we're going to just we know we we've been through a lot and we'll get through anything. So I don't I don't uh, lose sleep, and I think Scott might lose a little more than me. <laughs> Scott, go ahead. You're going to say what were you going to say? No, I mean, uh, you know, this, it's it's uh, it's tough to own a business uh, at times, and um, you just got to remind yourself that the stories you tell yourself in your head are not the stories that are real. Yeah. And um, and so, if you wake up at three o'clock in the morning with your head spinning, the first question is, did I just invent that, or is that, you know, or or has this actually happened? And um, and so that's how I control it. That's great. I, I just finished reading a book this year uh, called Sapiens, and it's the A Brief History of Homo Sapiens. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm reading this. But as I kept reading it, I kept going through it. And I'm like, this is just fascinating. You know, I'm more interested to learn today than I definitely was when I was in high school. Um, but the, 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 the reason why I bring it up is it said that the difference between Homo sapiens and every other creature out there is our amazing ability to create fiction and to, and to our detriment sometimes to your point scott you know it's we got to be careful don't always believe what you you know everything you think that's right yeah <laughs> um all right so we've got your priorities as people and attracting and retaining and developing good people um you know oh you two what are some of the ways that you interact with other business owners and and how do you know I, I my gut says if i'm not mistaken are you guys are you vistage members yes yeah did we i think that's how we got connected so i mean what is the what is vistage like for you as business owners what does that bring to your table vistage i joined vistage first and you know it really uh it really causes you to mature as a business owner and to realize that uh, everybody's business is really the same. There's so many issues that become very similar, no matter if you're in a manufacturing business or a service sector business or construction company, you know, you all have the same issues with, 
you know, finding and attracting people and selling the work and performing the work and then getting paid for the work. And, uh, and you got a whole group of peers to, uh, to really, um, to really drive that home and to help when those really tough decisions come. I've been a member of Visage for 15 years. Okay. And, um, I, I feel that, uh, that it's been extremely important, not just to my personal growth, but to the growth of our organization and to uh, the overall leadership of the organization. And um, Eric joined Vistage a couple, two or three years after I did, but a visible change in Eric once he joined Vistage and he joined a different group than mine. And we're, you know, we're a small company, but we we invest in two of us. Uh, actually, there's four of us that are in Vistage now in our organization. And uh, because we have two guys in the key man groups because we believe so much in it. But there was a visible change in Eric after joining that group where he stopped thinking like an employee and he started thinking like a business owner. And that's a crazy way to say it for the business owner. But, you know, at some point, when does your when does your mind turn to strategic decisions and um, and how do you make that happen? And so groups like Vistage are extremely important and have been very uh, valuable for us. Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to be Vistage. It's just that's how we met. Um, but I know that there's the Entrepreneurs Organization and YPO and, you know, there's plenty of other, you know, CEO roundtables, I'll call them groups. But it's that what you said, two things that really I think are important is you grow as a CEO, you grow as an, a business owner because, you're surrounded by all these other people. And I'll tell you, in my group, there's, you know, people that are, you know, making a million dollars a year. And then there's a guy that's making a, in 10 years, immigrated from, a, from, a, from Europe, from the Ukraine, came over from the Ukraine 10 years ago. He's running a hundred million dollar business within 10 years. And he says, I'm not growing fast enough. And, and so, so by putting yourself and surrounding yourself with some different people, with some different attitudes, I, I've always found to be helpful. Mm -hmm. I agree. Eric, what has been uh, your favorite part of being a part of the, you know, the CEO roundtable group? <clears throat> well, um, there's just so many lessons to learn, and I hate to say that they're they're they are not all positive. Um, I've been in there, I guess, what 13 years now, and I have watched so many uh, new members come and go and we've had a guy we've had um so i'll give you for instances a guy that was in charge of a 190 million dollar um drilling company and he was a division president in the united states and okay. of a canadian company drilling oil wells uh and you know we watched this guy whose morals were with his people but then the company turned on him they got somebody killed and he wanted to, to treat it one way or another and at the end of the day they end his 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 employment so he goes out on his own and 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 he stays with us and he tries to start his own oil rig company for a while you watch guys like that you watch guys i had a guy that came in and he was in the logging business in colorado and he cut areas of land for the forest service but it, he never he failed he was a younger man he failed to calculate the price of what it was going to cost 
per whatever situation or whatever gas. And, and he was in these huge contracts, a $10 million worth of contracts from the government business. And he couldn't fulfill the contracts because he literally could not afford um, to do what he had committed to doing. So we watched him go bankrupt. And, um, and that's not, um, that's not fun to watch, but you, you see these people in the paths that you take, see another guy who took a, a little tiny $3 million electric, electrical contracting company and turn it into a $150 million company who does all the solar, um, yeah, all the solar installation for the government all the way across the country. It's just, it's just nuts what, what you see in that place. And then be able to ask anybody any question. Uh, I can't say enough good about about uh, Vistage. Even when I don't have questions, you see somebody who might appear to have a really, um, you know, not a very interesting question, but then all of a sudden the discussion brings out such a lesson. It's it's great. Um, yeah. One more story. A person in my group now. We have a couple who in, they got into the hemp industry. They're producing this CBD oil, which I guess is wildly popular. They have the only recipe process that gives a zero THC value in this stuff. And they're right now, right in the middle of writing the new laws for Congress with the congressman. And I mean, they're running this business here in Colorado and they're in the middle of politics. Um, anyway, I guess we shouldn't spend so much more time on that. I would, I do want to put in my two cents about there are other industries, particularly the associations for the listeners that are out there, whatever their industry association is. Uh, Scott and I have been, been uh, involved with the National Tooling and Machining Organization um, through our local chapter and sat on committees. I know Scott, I think is still on a committee for um, workforce development with uh, with those guys and then their their national um, conferences and stuff that they hold to be able to talk to other people in our same industry yeah um, understanding that yeah we might compete over one or two things here or there but we have a lot better opportunity to learn and to complement each other no I, I really appreciate you mentioning that Eric um, it's so important that you're involved in your associations in your industry. Um, I, I want to wrap up here and be, you know, cognizant of your time, but let's parting, parting wisdom. If you're, you're standing in front of an audience of, you know, 50 family businesses, what are, what are your parting words to uh, the, the family businesses in front of you? My, mine would be, don't put all your eggs in one basket. A lot of business owners tie everything up that they've got in their business. And I personally think it's important to be looking at other investment opportunities all the time. Um, real estate's a good one. Uh, don't forget your 401ks, especially when you're young. And um, yeah. and and realize that you're in this, uh, not just to survive today, but for the rest of your life. And so, you know, be constantly, you know, Talk to Michael. Michael's your wealth advisor and and uh, and ask him for some advice because business owners often get tied up in doing only only the business. And I think that that's uh, that's a mistake. Love it. 
Eric. Well, I think more. the most important thing with it is to realize that um, you have a, a unique opportunity that others have before you may not have um, to cherish it, um, embellish it, and um, plan on enjoying it uh, for for a very long time. If your ideas are going to be to try to grow something and then and then milk the cow, as to say, so that your books look good, so you can sell the business, and well, then you're cheating yourself and also your employees and their uh, their their futures and their sons and daughters' futures. We have multi-generation of family employees that have followed us. Um, I think the survival of a family business is should be taken extremely seriously, um, and and not not be uh, thought of as a vehicle that was passed down so that it can be sold. Yeah. No, I I, I love what you just said. That's I I think about that as we it, it's our term time to be good stewards of what was done before us. And I'm a second generation. You know, my many of our clients have been with the family for 30 or 40 years longer than I've been in the business. And and that's a testament to what my father taught me. Um, and I've just, you know, like you, the two of you, I've diversified and I've added some different things. I'm not a big fan of all the government regulations that we might have. So I, I found, you know, I like to work in some other areas that are just a little different, like coaching. But uh, I, I can't say thank you enough to the two of you. We've got a great history of Denver Machine. We have a great history on, of how proud you, the both of you are of what your family did. Um, you're both obviously great stewards of, you know, the, the work that was done before you and so many other really thoughtful nuggets that I hope that people there's, you know, take away from, from this episode. I really appreciate both of you. Thank you for joining us, everybody. Uh, my name is Michael Columbus with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And you've been listening to the Family Biz Show. We are excited to have you tune in to our next episode. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Family Biz Show. We hope you've gained valuable insights and practical tips for running a successful family business. Remember, managing a family business can be both rewarding and challenging, but with dedication, communication, and a clear vision, you can create a thriving enterprise that supports your family and community for generations to come. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. We'd love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Don't forget to follow Family Wealth and Legacy on LinkedIn and Facebook for more resources and updates on upcoming episodes. And most importantly, keep the conversation going within your own family business. Remember, you're not alone in this journey and we're here to support you every step of the way. Thank you again for tuning in to the Family Biz Show and we'll see you next time. content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. 
Securities and Investment Advisory Services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy, LLC, is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.